Well, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to 3 John, you'll remember last week we preached from 2 John, 13 verses. This one is considerably longer at 14 verses. But the sermon isn't. We put the island there because we noted that John is writing this likely in exile on the Isle of Patmos, which is off the coast in the Aegean Sea of the peninsula that is Asia Minor. It is believed, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, that John on this island was likely though it's not proven, but likely, according to church church records, dipped in hot oil as his punishment. I can't imagine the scalding pain and the turmoil of physically being dipped in molten, essentially bubbling, burning oil and being brought out. It would be unfathomable pain. It would be grotesque. And this is the aged Apostle John, who was the beloved and youngest John of the Apostles when Jesus came. I always like when I preach and talk about the Apostle John. He was... I have two batteries, so maybe I'm just losing my voice anyway. Um, He was one of the sons of thunder. That was perfect. It did that right as I said he was a son of thunder. Um, sons of Zebedee. What do we know about James and John's mama and her request to Jesus? What did mama ask Jesus? Hey, you got it. I want to, I, 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 Lord, I want my boys to sit on your right hand and on your left hand. And Jesus' response was an honest one. It's not for me to give. Right? There is going to be a will of God that plays out. There is the work of God. He had perfect foreknowledge. He knew how. Uh, I believe personally in Jesus' earthly sojourn, he chose to suppress some of that knowledge so that he could take on human flesh, knowing the will of God was perfect and right. But there's a wonderful truth when you look at James and John. Who was the first martyr of the church? I gotcha. (laughs) Stephen. (laughs) But the first apostle was James in Acts chapter 12. See, sometimes pastors roll that dice out here, right? The guys that sit in my office and study the book of Romans with me or the book of Acts, they know that I will do set up questions like that all the time. In fact, I got Zach just yesterday morning. Uh, We were talking about Acts chapter number four. I'm taking him uh, through Acts because I believe if you're going to be a pastor, and he's an excellent one already, but if you're going to be a pastor worth your salt, you need to know how the church works. And the book of Acts is the textbook on how the church works. And we spent 35 minutes on Acts 4, verses 36 and 37. And Barnabas and Joseph, the son of consolation, and I call him now the son of the Holy Spirit because that's the word. But the point is, when you talk about the martyrs, Stephen is really the first that we know about, uh, probably others may have given their life or lost their life, or maybe they were followers of Christ, but the first martyr is Acts 7, 
And then we get to Acts chapter 12, and James is killed. And it pleased them so much that Herod says, I'm taking Peter. But James is one brother. And so if I were starting a timeline, I would say, well, who was the first apostle that was a follower of Christ that was murdered? And it would be James. And who's the last apostle that died? It would be who? Be careful sometimes, moms, what you ask for. Because James was the first one martyred or the first to die of the apostles and John was the last. And so they did sit on his right and his left hand if, let's take a picture in heaven of the 24 elders who were there worshiping God. If you look around the circle of those fellows, then James would be here as the first and John would be here as the last. And it's possible, it's possible that that is the way it is. Now, you notice what I've said there. There's a lot of possibilities. There is no definite nature. We can't speak definitively on these things, but it's wonderful for our spiritual mind to wander and to think and to muse upon these things. It's not a bad thing to think on the things of God and to think openly and creatively about them. You just can't take liberty with them. I can't say it dogmatically. Well, this is the John. This is where he's at. And John is writing this, as we noted from last week, he's writing this final three epistles, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. He's writing them 20 plus years, likely closer to 30, but for sure 20 plus years after the last letters from Paul, from Peter, from James, and even as we noted last week from Jude. So let's read this little epistle. We'll pray and then we'll jump into the preaching This evening, the elder, that's John, under the well-beloved Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Beloved. Thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to the strangers, or to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity before the church, whom if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort, thou shalt do well, because that for his name's sake they went forth, taking nothing of the Gentiles. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we might be fellow helpers to the truth. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true, or that I'm telling the truth. I have many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends. By name. Father, help us tonight as we look at this wonderful man, Gaius, as we see who he is, and we learn from this letter how we ought to live. I do pray that you'll help us capture our thoughts, and may we understand the recurring word 
the theme that we find here, beloved. Beloved, beloved. Lord, that is each of us this evening to our Savior Jesus Christ, and it ought to be each of us to one another in this place tonight. We can't walk out into the world and call them our beloved. We may have the love of Christ for them, but they are not of our family. Life near the end means the family is very fond of each other. Bless us as we understand this truth this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. In this letter, we find that John is finishing his thoughts, if you will, of his epistles. This is the last of the letters that John wrote to the church, I believe, that was at Ephesus and had spread out along the coast of Asia Minor. He is writing this letter in conjunction as a private memo to a man named Gaius, as we read this evening. In it, we find, along with all of the other letters that he's written and the words that he's written for us, that there was much that needed to be reinforced. There was much that needed to be refuted by this last living apostle. His motivation is that he was writing to a believer in the last times, calling and certainly wanting for him, uh, certainly for him, they felt as if they were and truly the last times indeed. He's calling us to be aware of the fact that it is the last times. These letters tell us what life is like at the end of all time. Now, it wasn't in his time. It was 90 A.D. We live in 2023 A.D. We noted last week that 1 John was written to encourage us to be a triumphant light in the world. If there is light and we walk in the light... 1 John chapter 1 tells us, then we will have no fellowship with darkness. What does triumphant light look like? Well, 1 John will tell you. 2 John, we noted last Wednesday, was written instructing us that truth must be loved. We noted the title of the message last week was Loving Truth. And the church, the elect lady that he writes to, is to love the truth with all of her being. Well, now we come to 3 John, and it demonstrates for us that our testimony is to be lived. There is a living testimony, and he gives us living testimonies in this letter. He gives to us three, if we wanted to break the chapter or or the, the little letter down into those three, we could. But the whole letter is written to Gaius, and it's not written specifically about Diotrephes or specifically about Demetrius. He uses them as examples to Gaius so that he could understand what it means to be in the Beloved or to be the Beloved. We might say it this way when we consider the living testimonies that we, consider, that we would consider. People don't know you by your words. Oh, your words are powerful. The old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. Words can hurt. And sometimes they can have deeper scars and cause deeper wounds than any physical trauma. But words often are just cheap. I can say almost anything. I can, I can say something to one person and something to someone else and walk away if they never meet each other, not feeling bad. But I can't do something and do something and not be noticed. People don't know you by your words. Instead, they know you by your works. And that's what he's going to give to us in this little letter. 
Jesus had warned us of this, and this is what John is picking up on. In Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, he begins there by saying, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. That's who Diotrephes is. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. That statement, by the way, sounds very similar to verse number 11 here in 3 John. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Jesus goes on in the Matthew passage and says, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is what? Hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. John's final admonition before God's revelation of the end of all things, the apocalypse, is, what we should li- is that we should live a testimony of the beloved. And so we're going to look at three ideas or three statements of the beloved here that really frame this tiny little letter but give us great truth. Please note that those who love God should show that they love God. This is what John is trying to tell us. They are well-beloved, he says in verse 1. They are, he is, excuse me, Gaius, beloved in verse 2. He is beloved again in verse 5. And beloved yet again in verse number 11. That's a lot of love in a little letter. You get the sense that John, the one who leaned upon the chest of Jesus Christ as the youngest of the apostles, that John really wanted to convey to Gaius, you, my son, you, my friend, are loved by me and by God. Boy, that goes a long way in a church, especially when the times get really dark. We should never be part of a body that is cutting and eating each other. But rather, we should be part of a body that loves, encourages, and strengthens one another. We will break this little letter to Gaius down then into those three beloveds. They serve as good landmarks to understanding John's message to this man. We begin in our outlines this evening in verses 1 through 4, and the beloved's Christianity. The beloved's Christianity. What made him Christian? Well, that's what made him beloved. And what made him beloved is the fact that he was a Christian. But not just because he was a Christian in his name. It was a Christ, he was a Christian by living out his Christian faith. Our testimony is first of our faith. The beloved people should resemble their beloved king. How often we find Christians that live, act, and talk like the devil, but then they'll tell you they're a Christian. Really? I don't know about you, but I was dumbstruck this week. And think what you will about Charles Stanley. God rest his soul. He's in heaven. I have no doubt about that. But heaven help his son, Andy Stanley. I don't know if you've been watching it. They're hosting at North Point Ministries. And he and his father years ago had a great schism and a division on their doctrine. They're hosting an LGBTQIQ plea 2 plus whatever Confab, where they all come together. And we realize 
just how we can have love towards them. The thing that I found interesting is that all six speakers are either Christians, and I'll put the air quotes up there, Christians who are men married to men, or their children are transgender. In other words, while that can happen, you couldn't have those people standing in your pulpit saying, thus saith the Lord. They don't know the Lord. And so what he says here is, look, you can't be beloved if you don't live and love the King of love, Jesus Christ. You have to obey Him. This idea of being beloved does not cast out God's holiness or His his sense of justice. All of those things are still there. His righteousness is still part of who He is. And so it doesn't matter how big your name is or how big your church is. It doesn't matter how little your name is or how little your church is. You cannot violate the Word of God and still be beloved. We find two things in the Beloved's Christianity. First, that Gaius is the well-beloved. I wanted to put that as a note because here's the point. To be beloved is good, but to be well-beloved is somebody that John constantly had on his mind. It was someone that consumed his thinking. Last week I told you that in 2 John, I believe it is written to the church not to a particular lady. He would have named her. How do I know that? Because in 3 John, when he's writing directly to a particular man, he names him. When he's writing about a particular man, he names him. When he's writing about another particular man, he names him. In other words, it's obvious that 2 John is an addendum, an addition to the letter, but it's to a particular church. That's the personal note there. Whereas 1 John was written to any of the churches that might read it around Ephesus. This letter is written to one person because John loved him dearly and he wanted to see him succeed. Boy, that's important. What does that tell you about this man Gaius? It means that there was time spent in his house. There was time spent getting to know him. There was energy and effort that was spent on Gaius' part benefiting John. And there was an investment from the apostle in this man's life. It's not like it was somebody he read about in the newspaper and said, Let me write to you, my well-beloved. It's somebody he knew. It's somebody that he shared emotion with. He shared purpose with. He, He shared his heart with. He knew this man and this man knew him. And so this letter is a very, very personal letter. It's no different than the letter of Philemon that Paul wrote. It's an intensely personal letter as Paul argues for Onesimus. Gaius certainly fit the categorization of 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15 where Paul says to Timothy, A beloved in the faith, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now there's some debate, but I'm going to give you my opinion. Now notice what I just did. Anytime when I'm preaching, Sunday morning I don't do this this often, Wednesday night I will because we're family. I believe this Gaius is the Gaius who is from Derby, and we'll explain that in just a moment. There are some commentarians that believe this Gaius is a completely different Gaius that is from this area. But, but hear me out in my reasoning, and then I'll explain the other. Because I think it makes a point. I think what God is doing here is teaching us a lesson. Gaius was from Derby, or let's say this. There is a Gaius who is from Derby. He and his household were saved in Corinth, 
You can look that up and you can write this down if you want. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14. That is that Gaius. And showed great hospitality to Paul while he was in Corinth. That passage is Romans chapter 16 and verse 23. As he's writing to the Romans, he says, Hey, my friend Gaius is a wonderful guy. I want you to commend him. The man then traveled with Paul and suffered persecution with Aristarchus as companions of Paul, he says in that Romans 16 passage. And here we find this man, some 25 years later, seems to still be fulfilling his faithful duties to Christ and to his fellow believers. Now let me make the counterpoint. Some will argue that this is a different man, a different Gaius, and that's possible. If it is another Gaius, then he has grown up in the faith to the point that he has become an established leader, an elder bishop here in these churches, seemingly around Ephesus. He's become influential in the church, and that he probably would have been one that started one of the churches. Here is one note that might be why those commentaries say that, and and I can certainly agree with it. He says, I have no greater joy in verse 4 than to hear that my children... Walk in truth. So it's either Gaius of Derby or it's a Gaius that was led to the Lord by the Apostle John. But here's the point. Whomever it is, this man has proven himself faithful. He's well beloved. As we consider this man, then John's desire before God is to see this man prosper, he says in verse 1. The Greek word means to succeed In any given endeavor, I want you to win. I want you to prosper. Gaius has undertaken the task of pastoring this church. And John wants him to succeed in that role as a pastor. That is a noble request for a shirt. May may I submit to you that as a pastor and with Zach on staff, I covet your prayers. I appreciate your prayers. I hope that your prayers for the staff here and for any of the pastors that have been influential in your life is always that they would be prosperous in the work of the ministry as much as their soul is prospering in the word of God. That is a wonderful prayer that is set upon a hinge. What John is effectively saying is, hey, Gaius, if you're not going to study the Bible and you're not going to be sold out to God in your own soul towards the Lord, then you're not going to prosper in your physical health and you're not going to prosper in the work of the pastorate. That's good. In other words, that's a really good prayer. Now, you can say, well, pastor, I don't know if I want to pray a conditional prayer. If you pray that I am successful as a pastor, but I'm rotten as a husband, good luck. It's a good prayer to pray. It's a good prayer to pray one for another as well. It is interesting. He said that thou mayest prosper. And then he says, and be in health. Even as thy soul prospereth. Notice that second prosper has the old King James ETH. That's why I love the King James. That's why it's my favorite. It's my Bible. It tells you it's a perpetual, ongoing action. You don't have to look up the word up in in the old, original language. The success John is praying for are in his mental and physical efforts because he is already prospering perpetually in his soul. He is endeavoring to draw ever nearer to his Lord. And he says, if that is your track and that's what you desire, then I pray that everything else meets to that same standard of your pursuit. 
That ought to be the condition of every believer in Jesus Christ. As we pray for one another's health, we might say it this way, we're saved, what other bad thing could happen to us? And the answer is a lot of bad things can happen to each other. There's a lot of surprises on the road of life. Thankfully, there's a God who superintends over all of those. He knows them. Gaius the well-beloved had a testimony of Christian faith, but we also find, number two, that grace in its working is found in him. Grace in its working we see in verses 2, 3, and 4. He says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and gave testimony. We entitled the message, Living Testimonies. When the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in thee, even as thou walkest in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. The word truth, every time you come to it in the Word of God, and it may be a little bit of shoehorning that I'm doing here, but effectively you could say this. What is true? Edward and I were talking about it in the office today. What is true? What is truth? Pilate asked. Truth is just divine, objective reality. And so when we read this, you could read this this way. For I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the divine objective reality that is in thee. In other words, Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, set your affection on things above and not on things of the earth. Why? Because that's the divine objective reality. We live in a veiled reality here. That's why Paul to the Corinthians says that we see through a glass darkly. We can see the truth. We can apply the truth. We can do the truth. But we aren't living in the fullness of that divine objective reality until we shed this mortal coil. Until we are standing face to face with our God, Creator, and Savior. And so he says to him that they would be healthy spiritually, verse number 2. That they would be Holy sound, and that there would be a joy within themselves. He says, You are walking in the truth. And to John, he says, That brings me no greater joy. That is the best blessing I could have. It's the greatest joy that, as a mentor and as a pastor, a shepherd over this man, Gaius. John was rejoicing in that fact as the last remaining apostle. So I ask, is grace working in your own life? Gaius, the well-beloved, had grace working in his very life. Do you? As John is writing this letter, he's not writing this letter to correct Gaius. He writes this letter to caution him. That's the intent of the letter. You are well-beloved, but but there's one particular type of personality, one particular way in which people choose to live. You should not choose it. But he begins by saying, there is a great truth to the beloved in their Christianity. There's great hope for us. The second we find is the beloved's charity in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. The faith and fervor of this church and of her pastor spoke to their love for God. 
Jesus speaks often about charity. He speaks often about our love. John chapter 14, John chapter 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. In John 15, my commandments aren't grievous, he he tells us. He says, if you love me, love the brethren. Take and do his commandments. He says in verse 5, beloved, again, the direction here is to Gaius. You, Gaius, doest faithfully whatsoever you, thou, doest to the brethren and to strangers. He's giving him a a note of admonition here that the way in which he engages in his Christian faith is important. Notice in verse 6, which have borne witness. Now, those strangers, those brethren who have traveled through where Gaius was, those individuals, this verse is what I link to Romans 16 and verse 23, where he with Aristarchus, was was benefiting the Apostle Paul, where he in Corinth was housing the Apostle Paul. He says, Thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers, which have borne witness of thy charity, thy love, thy agape, before the church. In other words, people have said, hey, this brother is a wonderful brother. So it now is not just John that's saying this is a beloved uh, um, individual. Others say, man, I really like that guy. I love that guy. He's wonderful. Have you seen how he serves the Lord? Whom, he says, if thou bring forward on their journey after a godly sort or in a way that pleases God, thou shalt do well or you'll continue in well-doing. Because that for his, that for Jesus' namesake, they, those strangers and brethren. The strangers here is not some random dude that walked into the church and Gaius wanted help. It is somebody that's strange to him but is not strange to God. It's a worker in God's work. And so it leads us to our letter A, and that is, the beloved's charity is first found in funding God's workmen. You could pluralize it and say workmen. If you wanted to get progressive and modern, you could add work women if you really want to. Maybe we could say work folk. The point, it seems, in verses 5 and 6, it's very direct that he had taken an occasion to be kind to individuals. He wasn't just taking money out of his pocket and heaping it into the offering plate. No, he was watching. He was looking. He was alert. He was aware. By the way, to be that, you have to be there. You can't be absent from church and go, Pastor, I'm going to call you. You tell me what the problem is and I'll fix it. That's not really helpful. You say, well, you don't want my help? If that's how God leads you to help, so be it. But... It's much better if you observe it and you intercede. I have, of our three boys, our middle one is the givingest giver of all givers I've ever seen. He will give, he is the absolute fulfillment. Now, he's also rotten and stinky, just in case you go out of here and think that I'm only doting on him. He's a fanon, all right? But... But he really does have a genuine heart to be a giver. And it blows Jessica and I away because, you know, as his parents, we try to be very giving, but we don't have his heart. I don't know what God's going to do with him, but it's a wonderful thing. This is what Gaius is. It's the idea of funding these people that are doing God's work. They find it very important. These early believers, and particularly Gaius here, trusted 
that his investment in God's work and especially in God's workmen was worth it. His faithfulness was noticed by the Lord, but it was also witnessed by those around him. Oh, he didn't do it to make sure that they heaped praise upon him. He did it because it needed to be done. Galatians 6 and verse 10 tells us what? As we therefore have opportunity, let us do good to all men, period. Comma. Especially unto them who are what? The household of faith. Guy's got it. He understood that principle. The beloved's charity is found first in the funding of God's workmen, but his charity second is seen in forwarding God's work. What does it mean then when we are engaged? By the way, Paul writing to the Corinthians gives the idea of the Macedonian believers who were giving to the work of missions. He says they first gave their own selves. If you're a giving individual and you want to see the work and the workmen of God to be taken care of, then you're going to also be interested in seeing the work go forward. You're not going to say, well, I don't care what happens to that church. No, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. By the way, it never really shocks me when people leave the church and Brother Mark Woods will come and say, he never says who gives what, but he will say at the end of the year, well, it didn't really affect the, the, the changes or the departures or the additions. And all he tells Zach is not what you give, but just the whole amount that we give. And when people leave and people come and people leave and people come into a church and we keep expanding and growing and growing, it's wonderful to see that all of us are sharing in the load. Do you know what that tells me? If I'm willing to fund the work, I want to see the work go forward. It's a blessing. It is remarkable. Here's what he says in verses 7 and 8. Because that for his name's sake they went forth. In other words, guys, you jumped in and funded because you understood what they were doing going forward. Taking nothing of the Gentiles. In other words, those who are not believers. The, the reference here to Gentiles in John's lexicon, at least in the context here, is those who are not Gentiles who are believers. He's using essentially the same thing that Paul uses when he talks at the end of Romans chapter 2. He says that they are Jews inwardly. What he's referencing here is, I'm not going out there and trying to find somebody of the Gentiles to fund it. I'm not looking outside the church to forward the work of the church. I'm looking within the church to forward the work of the church. That's what Gaius was involved in. That's what he's interested in. We, verse 8, therefore, ought to receive such. Who's the we? The brethren, the strangers, and John himself, who was a worker in the work. We, therefore, ought to receive such that we might be fellow, fellow helpers to the truth. Do you know what the word fellow helpers means? It is from two words, synthesize and energy. To fellow help is the idea of synergy, right? All of the buzzwords of the 1990s. What we need in this company is a little bit of synergy. You remember that? Anybody work in corporate world that heard that? Right? Some of you. Edward did. Two or three of you are laughing. The rest of you are like, I've never heard that word. I think you made it up. I might have. So did the people that also made it up. The idea is synergos is the word. It's energy that is synthesized. It comes together. In other words, when you get involved and I get involved, 
By the way, usually the process is when one man does a work and then two men do the same work, it's one and a half man doing that work. But in synergy, the idea is one and one actually can be three. Two plus two, maybe it's common core math, two plus two can actually become five. The idea of multitudes of people, hands, we we would say it this way. Here's a way to understand this concept, right? Many hands make light work, right? When I was a kid and I had really smaller hands, I used to tell my dad that I didn't have to help move tables because I said many hands mean light work. I don't have to do anything. That was not a productive argument on my behalf when I was a kid. This is what John is saying. He said, look, you are engaged in the synergy of the church. There is a unification. There is a bonding together. There is an element of success beyond what you could imagine. There are times, we've recently just gone through a couple rounds of budget cycles and we're getting ready. In fact, I think the two weeks from Two week, or a week from this Sunday, the budget will be open for review. And we've gone through this budget cycle, and it never ceases to amaze me that when we began Bluegrass, year number one's budget was $19,000. And that was like this. I hope it happens. <laughs> it's much different this year. But that's because there is a synergy to this place and to the people of this place. Now, we don't mean it in the academic sense. We mean it in the spiritual sense. The book, book of Ecclesiastes, we use this all the time in weddings. I used it in Melanie and Dylan's wedding. They had the cord of threefold or the threefold cord. And Ecclesiastes, Solomon says, a threefold cord is not easily broken. That's the concept that is being talked about here. You and me and me and she and she and he and all of us together in this room and in this body of the church saying, I'm in this. I want to do this. This is who Gaius was. This is what he understood. This is what he wanted to do in the work. This is the beloved's charity. First, there is the beloved's Christianity, then the beloved's charity. And it comes then to two characters, and that is the beloved's choice. Choices matter. What John does is give a caution beginning in verse 9, but he does so by setting two examples. You don't want to be Larry Loser. You want to be Wayne the winner. I don't know how that would work. But you want to be the other guy. You don't want to be Loser, okay? I probably should have written some more in my notes tonight, to be honest. Verse 9 is interesting. He said, I wrote under the church. Well, he's talking about here 1 John. Or he's talking about 2 John. If 2 John is to the elect lady, it might be that the elect lady is 2 John and Gaius is the pastor, the leader of the church in 3 John. That's possible. He says, but Diotrephes, there's one guy. You ever had one of those people in your life? This is that one person. I mean, if God had created every other billions of people he ever created, but he had not made that one, I'd been happier. Right? Well, this is Diotrephes to John. He's a thorn in his flesh. He's a problem within the church. He is certainly a tear amongst the wheat, it appears. That's the worst case scenario. The best is he's a son that's about to be chastened. But Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence, and so letter A, I put pride. The first choice that you can make is to be arrogant and proud. Seek the preeminence. 
I want it all about me. From our sermon tonight, our service tonight, when I go to the preacher's conference that I go to in February every, every year, I'm now preaching on this because I do believe, not in that group of men, but I do believe many a pastor, especially many a pastor within fundamentalism, has made themselves into a diatrophies. I'm the boss. I'm the only one that knows what's going on. You peons get in your place and stop asking any questions. Listen, if there's ever a pastor in this pulpit that does that, you run. Run as fast as you can away from this place. Go find you a good church or go start you another church. But run from this place if there's a diatrophies that is the pastor of this church. Who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Can you imagine being the last living apostle and not really ever wanting to harm a fly. Literally, they say at the end of the Apostle John's life, he kept saying, brethren, love, brethren, love. That was his message, they say on his deathbed when he finally gave up the ghost. They would bring him and they'd carry him in and set him before the church. And he would say, brethren, love one another. That's the guy that Diotrephes says, I don't want anything to do with him. Get him out of here. That guy sounds like a jerk. John says that he will address his deeds, which he hath done. (laughs) You can see some people probably in the back row Baptist going, oh yeah, I bet he is going to get them. What were his deeds? What was his cause? What is it that causes the love to wane or to wax? What is he cautioning here about this prideful individual? It says that Diotrephes was prating against John. The Greek word means to talk nonsense, to make up lies about John. He was making stuff up and spreading it to everyone, everywhere, whoever would listen. We'll say this about John. We'll say this about pastor. We'll say this about that deacon. We'll be careful. Notice all John does is publicly address what Diotrephes did. John never maliciously attacks Diotrephes, but Diotrephes uses malicious words in his prating against John. The word malicious here literally means to be depraved. Diotrephes used depraved words, slanderous words, scandalous words. He knew that his character could not hold up to John's character face to face, so he set to tearing down John in the eyes of others. You're a weak person when you have to publicly attack another person that you don't agree with. You're weak. John takes a very careful line here with diatrophies, a fine line, a spiritually defined line, between attacks and an honest assessment. He gives a spirit-led master class here in 3 John. Not satisfied with this, Diotrephes goes beyond merely attacking John in the next verse. We find that he's too good for the brethren. We're just not going to be hospitable, fellas. That's what Diotrephes was telling. If he was a, it, some believe he was a pastor of one of the other little pod churches or daughter churches that was started out of it, and that he was causing a ruckus in his church that was spreading to other churches. It's possible. Just like the Pope... Diotrephes lives in an ivory tower and seldom comes out to grace everyone with his presence. Either he felt he was too important, too busy, too introverted, too shy, or too afraid to engage in the lives of others. But Diotrephes said, I'm not going to receive the brethren in verse number 10. 
He also chastises others for their kindness. By the way, it is likely that this letter was written to Gaius because Diotrephes had probably taken specific aim at Gaius, tearing him down for receiving John. Hey, look, if you're going to make up all kinds of lies about someone and you're going to tear down that person, John, in the ears and the eyes and in front of that other person, then when that person is received by someone, that person became the enemy. And Gaius has now become the enemy because he received the apostle John. He received others who were doing the work of God. The point he makes is, don't be filled with such pride and arrogance to become a Diotrephes. That is the caution. If we're living near the end, then who do we want to be around? We want to partner, letter B, with the right kind of people. There's partnerships that we should have. He gives him the pivot or the hinge in verse 11. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God. He that doeth evil hath not seen God. I believe in that statement. He is saying Diotrephes is not even a believer. He's a ravening wolf. That's what he says here. But then he pivots after telling them, okay, we'll follow that which is good. He says, Demetrius, however, hath good report of all men. You want to pick somebody to kind of associate with? You want to find a partner? You want to find a fellow that you can hang out with? Find them at church and find them within the church, people that are well-favored, who have a good report. By the way, this same word or phrase, good report, is said of who the deacons are in Acts chapter 6. The deacon has to be of good report, full of the Holy Ghost, it says there in Acts 6. Demetrius had good report of all men. And notice of the truth itself. In other words, John says, I can take Demetrius, Gaius, and I can stack him against what the divine objective reality is. And his life in every aspect measures up. Not like Diotrephes. That guy's a loser. You want to be with this kind of person. These are the kind of people you want to make as your friends. How can we survive if the whole world is falling apart? The answer is find partnerships like Demetrius. And stick together. Acts 4 and verse 31 through 34. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. They spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart, one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things common. And with great power, when the church was partnered in the right way, when they were on the right path with the right purpose... Great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon every person in that place, upon them all. Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 1 and verse 27, Only let your conversation or your manner of living be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, doing what? Striving together for the faith of the gospel and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. He said, you all being together of one mind and working the work of God is an evident token of your salvation. Of course, then we know 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 9, for we are laborers together. With God, Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building, according to the grace of God which is given to me. As a wise master builder, I, Paul says, have laid the foundation, and another, a partner of mine, buildeth thereon. But let every partner, let every man take heed how he or she engages in building or buildeth thereupon. 
Demetrius had a good testimony in front of everyone. Those are the kind of people that you want to make your friends. The reason is, is because he lived within God's divine objective reality. His character produced in him, Demetrius, a conduct that was pleasing to mankind. I often wonder if Diotrephes and Demetrius were in the same church. I mean, by in this writing, it's clear that people in the same church knew both of the men. If there were little smaller churches that had started up and Diotrephes had one, I often wonder if Demetrius was in that church and what John is doing is not only telling Gaius to partner with him, if he's not sending a little message to the rest of them. Hey, this Diotrephes guy, you don't want to be around him. This Demetrius guy, that's the guy you want to partner with. That's the guy you want to do the work of the Lord with. It'll be successful. He closes his letter as usual, but it's the last time that he'll close it besides writing the revelation. In verse 14, he says, I trust I shall shortly see thee. And I believe he did. Again, reading or understanding the Fox's Book of Martyrs, John doesn't die on the Isle of Patmos. He dies in Asia Minor. It means he's likely back here in and around the church at Ephesus or the churches that were started from the original Ephesian church. I wonder what that partnership was like. I wonder what that reunion was like. How encouraged Gaius must have been from John's letter. From 3 John, we learned that life near the end is a lot like today. There's really good people in our churches. And every once in a while, you'll find a dud. All you need to do is take the cautionary tale, what to do with the dud, and that is, don't have fellowship with them. Our testimonies matter. That's what he's writing in this little letter. Be a living testimony as a well-beloved beloved. And that's who Gaius was. Father, help us, I pray, as we end this.